0: Uh, Matthew, chapter 24. Remain standing. We're going to read our text this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom. We've called it, and it's just full of the teaching of the Kingdom. And this is the 100th sermon that we've done in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's been a couple years, and we've taken some pauses here and there for other things, but today is sermon number 100, 100 weeks in Matthew's gospel, and uh, this is verse 32 to 35 of the Olivet Discourse. Hear the word of the living God. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And I'm sure all of us can say a hearty and deep amen to that. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and write its truths upon our hearts this morning. Let's pray once again. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Jesus, thank you for Matthew taking time under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write these words. Your word is life. Your word is peace. Your word is hope. Your word is truth. So write those truths in our hearts today. Be with me as I do my best, Lord, as your servant to share the truth with your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Any other fellow people pleasers out there with me? <laughs> Have tendencies to lean towards being a people pleaser. I certainly do. And man, life is just so much better when everyone just agrees with me. All right? Do you feel that way? Right? But that's certainly not the way it happens much of the time. And um you know, it's been a challenge for me as that type of personality to, to preach through this text because I know there's so many differing, conflicting views here and who likes conflict. And yet I'm hoping and praying that we can hold um, hold ourselves humbly before the Lord and uh, and go through these texts together. i, I, I May convince you, I, I may not. You may go away with a different interpretation understanding. Last week I told you Charles Spurgeon disagreed with how I interpreted the passage last week. That cut me to the heart. <laughs> this week he agrees with me, so I'm much better. So it'll well, probably be a much better sermon. Um, we're going through the Olivet Discourse. Um, if you're not familiar with it, the challenge in interpreting it is when, what is future and what has already been passed and fulfilled. And to this point, I have been teaching that everything up to this point has been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in particular back in the year AD 70. So I'll teach that perspective this morning and I hope it uh, encourages you and I hope it challenges you a bit. The question of this parable, we're talking about a fig tree here, and uh, at the center of attention of these few verses is still the question that the disciples had asked Jesus all the way back in verse 3. Do you remember what he had asked? They said, look at, look at the temple, look how amazing these things are, look at these buildings, they're awesome. And um, Jesus looks at them and says, yeah, they're all coming down. <laughs> Not one stone will be left standing upon another. And they were shocked. And they're, whoa, what's going on? And so they ask a question, when will these things be? When is the destruction of the temple going to be? And then they ask another question, when will you return and consummate the age? I have an understanding that they asked two questions but meant it as one from their perspective, thinking that if something so drastic and cataclysmic as the destruction of the temple were to take place, that must mean the end of the world. I believe Jesus is saying, no, Um, here's the answer. There's some things you need to watch for. I'll tell you when these things will be, and we've covered that over the last few weeks, and then next week we'll start into the future. As far as when I'm coming back, You won't know. Nobody knows. So that's kind of where we're heading. Um, Three uh, points I have for you this morning that kind of break the text apart into three different sections. So the first point is this. It's a familiar illustration for comprehension. Jesus wants them to understand some things here in this text. And in verse 32, he uses a, a parable, an illustration. He talks about a tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. Something I want you to do, and I imagine that being in, in uh, the, uh, the Jerusalem area right at this point, sitting on the Mount of Olives, there certainly were olive trees around, and I would imagine there's probably a fig tree right nearby, and he is looking at it and saying, learn something about this. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. What are we supposed to learn? Well, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near, and that's true, right? Right? how many of you are gardeners you have plants in your backyard or such and 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 you know the the, the winter at least san diego winter has been happening and usually that means in my house the the plants kind of shrivel up <laughs> and then now they're starting to come alive they're getting green again the flowers are actually starting to bloom and it's a very similar illustration that he's using here the fig tree in palestine loses its leaves in winter and it blossoms in the late spring And so as they sat on the Mount of Olives, again looking at these trees, I wonder if Jesus perhaps maybe pulled a fig from one to kind of put home the illustration. And remember, this is Holy Week, so this is just before Passover. And so that time of year, the fig tree would have been in the exact type of condition that Jesus is describing in the parable. The branch has become tender and it is now putting out its leaves. And so he's pointing out to them that the tenderness of the branch as, as the sap is moving into it and sprouting and growing its leaves, he's saying, I want you to get something out of this. This is an object lesson. What's his point? When you see that, when you see that physically, you know summer's right around the corner. Summer's at hand. And I believe he's saying in the same way, well, I don't believe, he's telling us in verse 33, so also, so also. So just like you can tell From looking at the tree, what's coming ahead, so also when you see all these things, what are all these things? I believe it's everything that's already taken place in the previous verses, the previous chapter. When you see these things, you know he is near at the very gates, reads the ESV. So just just like you can look at trees and plants and know that something's coming... I'm answering your question, and I'm trying to tell you as bluntly as possible what to keep an eye out for. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in various places. All of these crazy things are going to happen. False Christ will appear. But don't be fooled. The end's not yet. He wants them to persevere. He wants them to be patient and watch and wait. Kind of one of the things I grabbed from the illustration as well is understanding that that just like you can't make a fig tree grow, you got to wait for it to turn green. He's saying you're going to just have to hold on and endure and be patient and wait for what's coming. So when you see these things, just like you see the leaves on the fig tree, you'll know that it's getting much closer. So again... Being one who interprets this as Jesus is telling the disciples that this was going to be fulfilled, what he's waiting for is not the second coming of Christ, the parousia. What I believe he's telling them to wait for is the judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem and particularly the nation of Israel in the destruction of the city and the temple, which truly was considered a cataclysmic event for them. Um, Again, this is where we get into challenges of interpretation of of different perspectives because some have taken this, like I grew up reading this passage and knowing the fig tree and I was taught that that fig tree is Israel. When Israel uh, became a nation in 1948, all of a sudden, because Israel is used in the Old Testament as a a, a fig tree, as a symbol. And so I grew up thinking, and, and at least as a young buck, that uh, you know, in, in 1948, Israel became a nation, and that was the sign to watch for. Perhaps maybe you were in a similar type of situation. Maybe you read Hal Lindsey. Or maybe you heard a uh, Chuck Smith, or others who, who, who basically took that to mean that the rapture was going to come within one generation of Israel becoming a, new, a nation once again in 1948. And everybody was freaking out, right? Books are written. There was one guy who wrote a book called, uh, you know, Why the Rapture's Coming, and 88 Reasons Why the Rapture's Coming in 1988. Why? Because one generation is how many years? 40 years, 48 plus 40 years, and he had uh, 88 reasons to justify it, but 1988 came and went. Date setters have come and gone throughout them, and they have. Proliferated and whether you're like me more preterist or whether you are a futurist, here's what I would say: don't speculate and be a date setter. Guard your heart against those who would try to set dates. We'll talk about that more next week, but be careful. Don't focus on on end time speculation, but be focused on gospel proclamation and mission. We have a tendency to get so caught up in controversy, even taking controversy, well, like, that's new. What Brian, Professor Brian was teaching is a little different than what I was taught. And I'm not saying don't dig into it, dig into it. You know, tell me if my interpretation is wrong. We'll lock arms in the end and praise Jesus. But what I would encourage you to do is is be careful of getting so caught up in, in the signs of the times. Jesus is here letting them know that there's some, some things to consider and then what does it mean when he's saying so, so, so also when you see all these things you know that he is near at the very gates. Well first of all let me answer the, back to the fig tree because it's not just about the fig tree. One of the reasons I should have known years ago why how Lindsay wasn't correct in his understanding of setting those dates and such that Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 21 verses 29 and 30 it's the same parallel account. And Luke gives us a little clarification. Jesus says he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. He wasn't setting the fig tree up as some thing we're supposed to really like turn into a mystical understanding of. He's just saying it's about a tree. It's what trees do. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is already near. So in essence, any tree would have made Jesus' point. Jesus is simply drawing a lesson from nature. And so as he applies the lesson, he's saying, when you see all these things, again, all the things that, that, that are going to take place here in the coming generation, when you see these things, be alert, because you know that he's near at the very gates. Now, well, that might take some explanation, because I think the ESV misses it. It's a, not a good translation. He is, that the Greek word is estin there, it's a, it's a state of being verb. He is near is much better rendered as, as some of the other versions translate it. It is near. And the Greek word is, uh, is ambiguous because it can either be masculine or neuter. And so if it's masculine, I believe it refers to the vindication of Jesus as seen in his coming judgment. But if it's neuter, it's referring to the desolation, the desecration, and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And the ushering in of the kingdom of God, which is what Luke says it is in chapter 21, verse 31. Luke, in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know not he is near. You know not it is there. You know the kingdom of God is near. At the very gates. Gates, the, the word thura, which is translated gate or, or door. And that's a common biblical understanding of being poised for judgment. Standing at the gate, waiting, ready. Something is about to happen. James uses it in James chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so this is Jesus saying, pay attention, disciples, Followers of mine, pay attention to the fig tree and learn its lesson. When, when I'm telling you, ask your question, I'm answering your question. When will these things be? Well, when you see these things start to happen, pay attention. Because you know it's near. Judgment is at the very gate. I'm standing poised to destroy Jerusalem. And So we have a familiar illustration for them to comprehend. And then secondly, we see a vital declaration for clarity. Verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And in my estimation, this is the most critical verse of the entire Olivet Discourse. Because any interpretation of the Olivet Discourse stands or falls on this verse. He's saying, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things. What are all these things? What things all things that have been prophesied from verse 4 to verse 31. And then this generation, genea, is the word for generation. This genea, this generation, what generation is that? I take a simple reading of it in the context as the generation that sees the signs. What did the disciples understand? What would they have understood by Jesus Simple phraseology here, this generation. Truly, I'm saying to you, it's important. He's obviously making emphasis. This generation will not pass away. Well, this is where a lot of the controversy has existed on what this means. Because if if you're a futurist, this generation can't mean the generation of the disciples. And that's where the different understanding and conflict would come in. And there's different ways that, that people have answered that, where they would say it's, it's not genea, it's actually, uh, it doesn't mean generation, it means race, and it means the Jewish people, the Jews will be around until the end of the age, but I, I, it's hard for me to grasp that because words aren't silly putty. You can't just switch out. There's a clear biblical word for race, it's genos, and it's a different word than genea. Also, there, there, There's many understandings, but let me, let me tell you what I'm seeing here in the context of this generation. First of all, in the context of, of the Olivet Discourse itself, it seems simple and clear to me that he's talking about them. When we open it up a little wider into the context of what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees and the scribes just a chapter earlier where he was condemning them, pronouncing curses and woes upon them, it, for me, even makes more sense that he's talking about that generation. In the whole context of Matthew, it's interesting because Matthew uses the word generation multiple times. In Matthew 11, verse 16, he says, But to what shall I compare this generation? Jesus is talking. Who, who is this It's the generation that heard and saw Jesus and and John. Jesus is saying, what shall I compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and yet wisdom is justified by her children. What generation does he mean in chapter 11? It's... It's the generation of John the Baptist. Also, something that is important to me, I'm kind of a grammar nerd. Any grammar nerds out there? Yes. So, Joe, let's do a grammar lesson. This generation or that generation, what, what would those words be called? What, what parts of speech? Putting them on the spot. Pro, uh, th- yes, they're pronouns. Very good. Do do pronouns matter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we certainly know that today, don't we? <laughs> this it's this generation, not that generation. What kind of pronouns are they? Come on, class. They're demonstrative. Is that what you said? Good job, Joe. They're demonstrative program or, or pronouns. And then now now there's something even more. A little bit deeper than Jill, let's see if you know this. They're demonstrative pronouns that are where in location. One is this is near. That is far, right? So it's it's distal and proximal. So all the grammar nerds are going, woo-woo, the rest of you are like going, please just move on. The, the, the point is I'm, I, I think it's kind of simple. This, not that. It goes on, he goes on in the the context of Matthew in chapter 12. Look at verse 38. You can flip over there or it might be on the screen. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And listen, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What does he mean when he's saying the men of Nineveh will rise, Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation? He's calling out that generation. He goes on in verse 42 and says, The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Here's Jesus' point Here is, The Messiah has come to this generation, which was that generation then, <laughs> and you, you don't even recognize him. Not only that, you condemn him. And so the men of Nineveh repented, and you won't even repent. So they're going to rise up in judgment, he says, of, of you guys. There's even more light, I think, that's shed in Matthew 23. In verses 34 to 36, right after Jesus had been just blasting the Pharisees with the woes, Jesus says this to them. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And that certainly did happen, right? We know the apostles went out and did that. The prophets had come. Wise men had come. Scribes had come. They killed. They crucified them, They flogged them. Verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Jesus is enfolding the scribes, the Pharisees, the generation of Israel at this time into this very broad category of, "You're the worst of the worst." And all throughout the years, I've sent my prophets and I've sent my people and I've sent my prophets and my people, and you've rejected them. But now the Messiah has come and you have rejected him. And so he, it's like he's been filling up this, this big bowl of wrath, of judgment. And he's been patient and he's been patient, he's been patient. Finally, the fullness of time had come. He sends Messiah. Messiah is rejected. And that bowl is filling up. He says in verse 36 of chapter 23, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You will be destroyed. We know that destruction came. And I understand we don't, simply interpret prophecy by historical events. But when the historical events are are very straightforward and clear, it actually helps us to understand the interpretation of the prophecy. And so Jesus had prophesied, this generation is not going to pass away until all these things happen. And 37 years later, these things came to pass. And so it seems to me that this is fairly straightforward. That that, that this generation is the generation of Jesus right then and there. The generation that he's talking to right then. This generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Why the time frame in this particular verse? Why does he want them in particular to know and understand this? I mentioned it over the last several weeks. I believe it's because Jesus' heart is the heart of a shepherd. Jesus loves these men and cares for these men, and he's being once again pastoral. Because remember who he's talking to. He's talking to men who would forbid him, if they could, to go to the cross. If they could stop him in just a few days, they would. No, Jesus, not that. This is Jesus letting them know what's going to happen, that there's going to be judgment. There's going to be destruction and desolation for Jerusalem. Your whole world is going to be upended. And it was a massive struggle for them. I was just thinking and reading the other day in, in Acts when Peter Remember the apostle Peter, he's one of these guys. And and, and even years after Jesus had ascended to heaven, he's he's struggling with with, with Jew-Gentile situation. He even goes so far as to to mess up with Gentiles in Galatia and, and separate himself from them, and the apostle Paul has to dog him out. And that's after a vision and everything in Acts, after he had learned. Sometimes we don't understand how things are so entrenched in us. We can't see. And so he wants them to know well ahead of time there's going to be judgment. A massive shift is coming. But summer, oh summer, summer. Are you waiting for summer to come? <laughs> With all this San Diego cloudiness, I'm getting tired of it. I follow my, uh, open up my little weather app all the time, like when is the sun coming out? So it says it's coming out this week, but the weathermen are usually wrong, so we'll see. Summer. Summer also means, yes, summer means destruction for Jerusalem, but summer also means Fertility. Life, growth, fruit for the kingdom. I like what Marcellus Kick wrote. He said, the destruction of Jerusalem and the events preceding it were not terrible signs, but harbingers of a summer that would spread its blessings throughout the earth. All the disturbing events predicted by Christ instead of discouraging the disciples, should encourage them. For by them they would know it was the beginning, not of winter time for this world, but of summer. And they indicated the beginning of a worldwide harvest of souls. You and I, which I imagine most of us are Gentiles, are here because summer came. What a blessing. And so in light of in light of life as a Christian, even in this world, in light of the suffering and, and, and the pain, you know, every single one of us, even these disciples, they, we have a tendency to live with an escapist mentality. I mean, do you? I do. Like, I don't want to suffer. Very few are just like, bring it on. <laughs> we don't like pain. These guys wanted to get right there, right? I mean, these are guys that heard Jesus say things like, you 12 are going to sit on 12 thrones and judge Israel with me. <laughs> Bring it on, Jesus. That's why they, they struggled so much with this concept of cross before crown. And so this is an encouragement to not think and live any part of our lives Just wanting to get out of of here or of pain or of suffering or of struggle. But to suffer well. To suffer long. To suffer knowing what's ahead for the people of God. We see a familiar illustration for them to comprehend. A vital declaration for clarity and thirdly an enduring promise for confidence, an enduring promise for confidence. Look at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Oh, what words. Oh, what encouragement. Can you imagine hearing these for the first time as the disciples trying to grasp what in the world Jesus is talking about? Heaven and earth will pass away, Oh, but my words will not pass away. What a statement. What a promise. And who who but the Son of God could give such an explicit promise? Who but God in human flesh could, could say such a thing? And certainly it speaks loudly and clearly to the reliability of the words of Jesus Jesus as the word of God in made flesh, the living, breathing word of God. Living out the, the promise and the prophecy of Isaiah and the truth that says in Isaiah 48 that the grass withers and the flower, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We can build our lives upon that truth and we should. There's so much going on here though in this little simple sentence but it is deep and rich and even deep theologically as an encouragement to endure for the king while we are advancing the kingdom to be able to look upon the the living breathing word of God saying heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. But I also want to share just another thought with you that maybe you haven't considered before. You see, Jerusalem was thought of as, by the Jews, as the center of the earth. It was... Consider that, that God had placed her in, Scripture speaks of this, Ezekiel speaks of it, Ezekiel 5, 5 says, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. So God calls out this family, makes them a nation, puts them in the center of the world if you will, puts the nations all around her, they were supposed to shine as a light to those nations. And the temple was at the very heart of the very center, the temple, which was modeled after Eden. a fascinating study, if you want to I' encourage you to study that. Beale's got a great book on that, how the temple is modeled after Eden. And that was central. The, the temple was central to God's redemptive purposes in history. Solomon's Temple as we look at how it was built and constructed from Scripture, it was, this, it was this micro version of the cosmic temple, which we see, we studied that back when we studied worldview about creation, that all creation itself was a temple for God. And here the temple now itself that was built was, was an illustration, if you will, of God's manifest presence to the old covenant people. It was thought of as the the, the point at which creation had taken place around, and and, and everything revolved around it. It was called, in some places, the navel of the earth, earth's belly button. It's the center. It was the meeting point of heaven and earth, the the gate to heaven, if you will. We don't understand or grasp the full significance of, of, of these things, but I'm I'm trying to, to, to get you the, to, to see that in the Jewish world, especially in this time, the belief was very clear and overwhelming that the temple was regarded as the epitome of the world. A concentrated form of the essence of creation. It was like a miniature cosmos. Much more than just a, a, the, the point at which heaven and earth met. And actually was... Seen as heaven and earth itself. If we look at the temple, even the the, the structure of it, it had a threefold structure the, the sanctuary, the holy of holies, the supreme holy place. It had the inner and outer courts, which are allowed and were thought of to correspond to heaven. And earth and the sea, respectively. When you see and understand that this temple was God's special place where His special presence dwelled, the place He made Himself known, where you see it reflected even as a model of creation, as Adam was called to cultivate and keep the garden, the priests. We're in the very same way called to keep and cultivate the temple. You see the tree of life in the garden. You see the lampstand in the temple. You ever read through the construction of the temple passages in the Old Testament and it just goes on and on about flowers and palm trees and pomegranates and pomegranates here and this and you think, I just want to skip over this don't. I know it sounds so foreign to us. But this was the understanding, that, 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 that this is like the new garden. This is where the presence of God dwells. The garden had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The temple had the ark of the covenant, both of which, if you touch it, you die. In Psalm 78, verse 69, the psalmist says, He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. Forever. So just with that brief foundation, I want you to consider something that I found amazing and spectacular. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read through verses 18 and through 29. But let me just, we, we studied Hebrews a while back in our Sunday school class. But let me just refresh you and remind you why Hebrews was written. It's called Hebrews because it was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were struggling because they were in the midst of what Jesus had predicted was going to take place. It was written prior, just prior, I believe, to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And they're they're struggling because they're being persecuted, because they're being ostracized, because there's a massive temptation to go back To go back to the old ways, back to the old covenant, back to the Mosaic law. And the whole book is written, this letter is written to them to say, Jesus is better. He's better than all of it. Don't go back. In chapter 12, verse 18... He's going to reference what happens in Exodus chapters 19 and 20 where Moses receives, goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the law of God. So that's what's taking place here. But listen to the author of Hebrews as he writes. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, And a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Remember, that happened in Exodus 19 and 20. All this crazy clouds and earth, you know, thundering is going on. And the people are like, you talk to God, leave us alone, Moses. (laughs) You go, you go. He's saying, you're not coming to Sinai, you Jewish Christians. You're not going back to Mount Sinai, verse For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Do you see the contrast? But you haven't come to this, but you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God That's what he's saying, and that's what you've come to. This new way of worshiping your Messiah. You're, you're, You're longing to go back to the sacrifices. You're longing to go back to the law. You're going back to death. You're going back to destruction. You've come to something totally new, and it speaks a much better word. The blood of Jesus speaks life and forgiveness and redemption. The blood of Abel speaks cursing and cries out for vengeance. You've come to a whole new place. So verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? saying, don't be like the old people did. And then in verse 26, he says something I want you to really consider. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, quote, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens, end quote. What is he doing? He's quoting from Haggai, the prophet. He's bringing up again all these Old Testament illusions of what happened back at Mount Sinai, and he's saying that's not what you're in anymore. You've come to something new in Jesus Christ And he's saying there was that time, at that time, back at Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. But now he's promised something else. Once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. Let's just revisit. Let's go back to Haggai. Turn to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. Let's read it in the context of what he's talking about. And here's what we're going to see here. Remember the, the telescoping thing we talked about a few weeks ago or, or looking at Yosemite and seeing the mountain peaks? One's close and one's far, and it, it looks a lot closer than it is. But this is apocalyptic stuff going on here. This is what we're talking about. He's going to see some things that are, that are going to come to pass, and then they're going to come to pass in a more complete way with Christ. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month... On the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. By the way, this is written, Haggai ministered about 520 B.C., which is about 15 years after the temple had begun to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. So they're they're rebuilding the structure. It had been torn down and devastated by the Babylonians. And so he's in this context of the temple's getting worked on, and he prophesies, verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehosadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Well, how do you see it now? Some of them were old enough to remember Solomon's temple. And they're looking at it. They're looking at the new one being built, and they're very disheartened. So here's the prophet speaking the word of God to these people. He's saying, you you guys who remember that, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You're brokenhearted. It's kind of pitiful. Yet now, verse 4... Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. What an encouragement that must have been for them. Fear not, he says. I know it doesn't look like much. But I'm with you, don't be afraid. Why? Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more. Here's the passage the, the writer of Hebrews is now quoting. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What's going on here? He's talking about this shaking, right? He says, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake the nations, so that the treasure of all nations is, shall come in. Basically, I'm going to rebuild this temple. And the glory of, of this temple. I don't even need you all to do it. I can shake all of the money that needs to, to, to build it out of the nations. It's all mine. And I'm going to have this rebuilt. And the, latter, the glory of this house and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Says the Lord of hosts. Why? Jesus. You say, but yeah, but Jesus destroys the temple because Jesus is the temple. That's where it's going. So Jesus will one day walk into this temple, and it's his, and he's gonna inspect it, and he's gonna see it lacking and wanting. He's gonna see a faithless generation. He's gonna condemn them with woes to be judged. They would not receive him. And he will turn them over to desolation along with that building. And the glory of God will depart. But a great work at the same time will be taking place. The author of Hebrews begins to give us a new covenant commentary on this passage in Haggai. Let's look at it again. Look at verse 27. Or verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, quoting Haggai, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. And now here's his commentary, this phrase, yet once more. He's explaining this is what it means. It indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. All right, what's going on here in Hebrews? He's talking about these words yet once more. He, he explains it, that it means something. What does it mean? It means the removal of of things that are shaken. So there's a contrast. He's pointing to a contrast between two things. One, there's a first a contrast between Sinai and Zion, right? Two things. Did you see it in there? Old and new. Old covenant, new covenant. Law and gospel. There's this, there's this contrast of covenants that he wants them to understand. And then he, he's speaking of this earth and heaven shaken, in contrast to when earth and heaven was shaken in Sinai. Excuse me, earth was shaken in Sinai. Because he's making that point. He says, earth was shaken here in the old, but earth and heaven will be shaken. So the contrast is, if you will, a shaking at Sinai versus a shaking at the inauguration of the new covenant is what I see Most commentators hold this to speak of the second coming. And that that certainly is plausible. But the more I've studied this, the the more I I see this as a a clear indication of the inauguration of the new covenant. So hang on to your seatbelts for a second. The language used here of removal. The removal of things which can be shaken. Namely what? What is being removed? Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. So the contrast is between then and now. And I see it going with promise and fulfillment. The shaking is the established, shaking of the heavens and the earth is the establishment of the new covenant. He speaks of a removal of things that are shaken. What is that? The the, the word removal there is metathesis. It's a a Greek word. It's a compound word set from tithemi, which means to set or to put, and meta, which means aside. So it's a putting aside of something. Something is being removed. What is being removed? That word removed, it's the same word that Hebrews writer uses in chapter 7, verse 11, to speak of the the new priesthood, a, a different priesthood. of of, of Melchizedek in verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So he's speaking of shaking and removing and, and such, and what's going on here? So let me explain what, if I haven't lost you already, what I'm seeing. Heaven and earth, temple, old covenant. Old Covenant sacrifices, Old Covenant worship. So the shaking up and the removal of the heavens and the earth is a reference to the passing away or the removal of the Old Covenant, which was completely fulfilled when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So here's my understanding. And I want you to consider this. Jesus is, in verse 35, being consistent with what we learn in Hebrews, chapter 12, which is consistent with what we see in Haggai. So we can certainly read the words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my merds will never pass away, as totally true throughout all time of Scripture. But another possibility here, beyond just speaking of the reliability of the words of Jesus, is this, that heaven and earth will pass away, meaning the old order is going to be done away with. But my words, the things which I have said, which constitute the new covenant, will never pass away. So the contrast, if you connect Hebrews 12 and Haggai chapter 2 with Matthew 24, 35, the contrast in verse 35 is between the old order, which is going to pass away, because there's a new temple that's coming, the old order and the new order, which is never, ever, ever going to pass away. And that's why the author of Hebrews is saying, don't go back. We know, we know from all of Hebrews, and we know from passages like Galatians chapter 3, that the old covenant was temporary. But the new covenant is an everlasting covenant in Jesus' blood. Consider with me Galatians three nineteen. Let me read it. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. And these were a group of people that were trying to force people to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul's answering some conflict and questions. And he says, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in the place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And So when Jesus says there, the heavens and the earth will pass away, I believe, along with good men like John Owen, who said these words I affirm that the heavens and the earth here relate not to the last and final judgment of the world but to that utter desolation and destruction that was to be made of the judicial church and state judaical church and state or John Brown a Scottish theologian from the 1700s Commenting on Matthew 5 and 18, he said these words, heaven and earth passing understood literally is the dissolution of the present system of the universe and the period when that is to take place is called the end of the world. But a person at all familiar with the phraseology of the Old Testament scriptures knows that the dissolution of the mosaic economy and the establishment of of the Christian is often spoken of as the removing of the old earth and heavens and the creation of a new earth and heavens. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, made, verse 2, made a prophetic prediction. You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? tried my best over the last few weeks to give you my take on this passage and interpretation that Jesus answers the first question from verses 4 through 35. When will these things be? Jerusalem is destroyed. The prophecy is fulfilled to a T within the next 40 years. And this event has a deeper theological profundity than I think we understand in our modern era. A few chapters from now, we're going to study Matthew 27. And in verse 45, Jesus is on a cross. And it says in verse 45, Now from that sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And verse 54 says, when the centurion and those who were with him kept watching keeping watch over Jesus, saw that the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Why? Why was this curtain torn in two from top to bottom? This was a symbol This was a statement that the old order of the old covenant that made a separation between God and man that would not permit access to God except one day a year and that through a high priest. That old system is gone. And it is now Through the death of Jesus Christ, that a new and living way has been opened up to God. And so, when Jesus dies on the cross, a, a deeply profound spiritual reality happens. The old covenant is now gone. Think about it. After AD 33, after Jesus dies on the cross, what is the value of the blood of bulls and goats? Hebrews says there's no value. None. And yet that blood would continue to be shed for three more decades. Because God is merciful. And then what God accomplished and declared in spiritual reality in AD 33, he brings to pass historically. Closing the chapter forever on the old covenant. It was a temporary covenant. It was a provisional covenant. It was a preparatory covenant and it had done its work when Jesus came. In fact, it, it, it only had a job to ultimately point not to Moses, not to Israel, but to Jesus. Jesus is better, a better mediator of a better covenant, a better sacrifice. He's a, a better priest with a better priesthood. And God came in judgment. And that temple was destroyed. No more sacrifices. The sacrifice has been made. God himself has shut the door on it. And in light of the fulfillment and inauguration of the new covenant, the old is now repugnant in the eyes of the Lord. There's a new temple. There's a new sacrifice. There's a new covenant. There's a new priesthood that will never pass away because it's centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's your application. Let me have the music team come prepare for communion. It's all about Jesus. Imagine that. (laughs) It's all about Jesus. Truly, this is the Son of God. And because it's all about Jesus, always has been, always will be, because it's all about Jesus, trust him and treasure him. Live in light of who he is and what he's done Out of his fullness, live with confidence. Not in yourself. Confidence is a great word. We've butchered the word to make it think it's from us. It's not a self-confidence. It's it's con, with, fide, faith. It's living with faith. It's living out, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We need to get our eyes on Christ. And the church needs to wake up from her pragmatic slumber. And be watchful and alert and focus our lives on the person of Jesus Christ and accomplish the calling for which he's called us.